0: Welcome back to Off the Sidelines, an investor education podcast series made possible because of Project Entrepreneur by UBS. I'm Abby Lee Moscone, and I'm here with Chris Wink, the only venture capital expert I know whose wardrobe has primarily originated in thrift shops.
1: Your big shot to open the podcast, that's what you'll leave with. Hello there, Abby. How you doing?
0: It was my, it was my one chance to open, and I was going to open with a bang.
1: Right, and what a bang it was.
0: Thank you. I, I'm excellent. I am a unicorn, I think. <laughs>
1: Oh, okay, alright, I think you should, you should elaborate. Well,
0: I think it'll make more sense once we roll into today's interview with Astrid Schultz, a founding entrepreneur of Accelerate, a fund that supports women founders, also the founder of Zebras Unite, a founder-led movement to create more ethical and inclusive startup culture.
1: Okay, I hear zebras and unicorns now. Yes,
0: so the heart of our conversation got to the idea of founders balancing the flash with substance. So like unicorns, this name for giant private companies that are valued at more than a billion dollars before getting into public markets. That's what entrepreneurs aspire to do, right?
1: But like unicorns don't really exist.
0: Exactly. But yes. you know it does exist.
1: Zebras. Zebras guys. Yes, but zebras, they're still actually rare.
0: Well, not on not on safari.
1: Well, okay. All right. How do I convey an eye roll on a podcast?
0: <sighs> you just did, Chris.
1: Alright, so you just did. Zebras, unicorns, it sounds like the beginning of an investment thesis. I want to hear from Astrid already.
0: Deal. So, I'll intro this by saying I started this conversation by asking her for her own definition of zebras versus unicorns.
2: The very simple premise is that, well, you know, zebras are real, they're not mythical creatures. (laughs) They're black and white, right, profit and purpose. Um, They're feisty, they're collaborative, and to us they represent companies that Um, exist to help make the world better, right? Like any entrepreneur, right, we see problems and we use the tools of business and the tools of capitalism and profit um, to make, you know, to solve those problems. And um, what we found, the four of us who founded Zebras Unite is that with the various businesses we were building, whether in the social change industry, in my case, or in education, or in journalism, uh, we were not um, finding any uh, reception, really, from the venture world. We were not happy with the way we were being asked to contort ourselves and put, um, you know, sort of churn over user experience, for example. Uh, We did not find um, that we could express our values and our vision in sort of the prevailing corporate structures and term sheets, and so we set out about inventing something that suited ourselves better and were pleasantly surprised in response to that piece to have literally thousands of people from all over the world come out of the the woodwork saying, I am a zebra. <laughs> I'm building one. I want to invest in one. Where do I go? Where do I find my tribe? Or, as we now know, the collective noun for a group of zebras is a dazzle. So where do you go to find your dazzle, right? And so we set out to solve that problem with Zebras Unite. Um, we contrast zebras to unicorns, which has become uh, sort of shorthand speak for companies that achieve a billion dollar valuation uh, the phrase unicorn was coined by Eileen Lee of Cowboy VC and um, you know her observation was basically that there are these sort of uh, just wildly aggressively growing companies right that get to get, get get to these valuations and since then it's really become shorthand for us um, and for many people in the industry and in popular culture right to to sort of designate companies like uber or WeWork right that consume just gobs and gobs of venture capital, right? Mm -hmm. Literally chewing chewing through billions of dollars in in VC finance before they even turn a profit, Mm -hmm. right? So the unicorn represents that sort of aggressive approach to growth at all costs. um, And that that in turn drives the way you build your business, how you treat your customers, how you treat your employees, all the things that we now associate with sort of the darker aspects of the tech world, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. From the Me Too movement to, uh, you know, contractors at Uber, et cetera. And so by contrast, we, we, we describe a zebra company as a company that takes care of its customers and its workers, that is equally as ambitious as some of the so-called unicorns, but goes about the growth um, in a different way, you know, actually prioritizing profits. <laughs> what a novel concept, right? And revenues over an aggressive market uh, grab sort of strategy. And as it turns out, um, lots and lots of people feel the same way about how they want to grow their businesses.
0: So I read in the piece that you talked about a zebra company being one of sustainability, not just growth and money, but something that can help the greater good or that can run for a very long time so that it's more sustainable?
2: Yeah, what we're, what we're really getting at is when you think about, you know, look at IBM, right? How old is IBM? Like older than the three of us in this room taken together, right? Sure, yes. <laughs> and so that's how we used to build companies, right? Companies used to be built to last because mm-hmm. they, they're you know, uh, providing for a family, they're providing for lots and lots of employees, they're producing value over a long lifetime. Um, and in the tech world, what we have seen is sort of this, it's almost like a disposable company, right? I, I talk to founders who say, oh, I'm just going to have my first company and, you know, 25, I'm going to sell it by the time I'm 28. And then I'm going to take the proceeds from that company to do the thing I really want to do, which is just a very different, um, you know, not to slam younger people. <laughs> but it's just a really different approach to why you're founding a business in the first place. And so when we say sustainability like a lot of zebra founders are basically building companies that are not disposable because they're solving important societal issues like you wouldn't want them to be disposable
0: right (laughs) Right. so now talk to me about the accelerator fund and this concept of zebra companies is that what you look forward to invest in or talk to me about what the accelerator fund
2: um, yeah yeah, what you do. So it's actually, so, so my company, um, you know, couldn't find uh, financing for the kind of business we're growing. The business we're growing is a zebra business, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Zebras Unite exists to help entrepreneurs like myself to essentially reinvent the capital system right around them where they live, right? Like, basically, the inside is if you can't find the capital that's right for you, just make it yourself. <laughs> like, BYOC, build your own capital. <laughs> and that's basically what we did in Oregon in the shape of the Accelerate Fund, which is spelled with two X to designate, you know, women writ large. Um, and, yes, we know that it can be a problematic from a branding perspective, but here we are. Um, And so what we've done with the Accelerate Fund is to say, well, it turns out in a a state like Oregon, uh, women in particular have a hard time. Women of all different colors, right, and all different ages have a really hard time raising capital. And nationally, we know that women attract less than 2% of VC. If you're a woman of color, it's it's even less than that. It's like (laughs) like basis points, not even a percentage. And, um, and, they only, and we only get about 5% of bank loans. So huge unmet need from women entrepreneurs you right. know, who make up, what, women make up half the population uh, in terms of accessing capital. And so what we did in Oregon was to say, one of the needed capital interventions is actually providing uh, access to capital for women entrepreneurs like ourselves. And um, we set out to build a loan fund that would provide debt to businesses. You know, for many reasons, and, and this sort of goes with the zebra ethos, right? You know, why would you want to dilute? Why would you want to give up ownership of your company if you could have access to debt? And that's, you know, debt markets have dried up with the financial crisis. We've lost in Oregon over a billion dollars in uh, early stage and the small business financing in the last ten years. And so there's just a massive need in in the market. And so we basically. You know, on a, on a local, on a national level, the Accelerate Fund is an expression of the zebra ethos to just invent your own capital, <laughs> if that is right for the culture and for the company that you're building.
0: How did you build this? I mean, it's such an interesting concept, but how does one build their own capital? <laughs>
2: Uh, you just go out and do it, <laughs> right? So we, we went out and um, got some philanthropic support to create an educational program for that is sensitive to um, the way women learn about business. So for example, a friend of mine is just now uh, getting into the Y Combinator, and you know he, he's leaving his family for three months, right? And that, that is just an incredible sacrifice, right? So many accelerator programs are residential. Uh, and people go through these just heroics to go to attend them. Well, it turns out that's not feasible for many women entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. right? So then you know we basically s- developed a curriculum around uh, now a twelve week program for women entrepreneurs who are sort of at a at an interesting growth stage in their in their company's life. and then we um, uh, paired that with a loan fund uh, and we raised that initial loan capital um, locally from, from philanthropic investors. so uh, you know local foundations and, and a local, uh, the state's economic development fund, essentially.
0: Have you seen this approach that you've taken take off with other people or other groups?
2: Yeah, out of necessity, right? So what we see around the country is entrepreneurs like ourselves solving the capital access problem for entrepreneurs like ourselves, mm-hmm. right? So we actually see this uh, in you know everywhere from Cincinnati to Mississippi to, to Boston to Nevada, right? Like there are people innovating the capital they need for their community of entrepreneurs. And it looks different in different places, right? Some folks are solving uh, the, the friends and family problem that African-American families have, right? So the, like, the three of us sitting here, we're all presenting white. Uh, statistically, we have many hundreds of times the family wealth of an African-American family, which in some places, like I want to say in Maryland, the number is down to $8, not 80000 eight, right? So try to raise a friends and family round when that is your family's wealth situation, right? So we see really innovative work sort of trying to bridge that friends and family gap. And in other markets, you know, in Oregon, again, we, we, we landed on a, on a debt product uh, for growth stage businesses that just have a strategic capital need or need a line of credit that you can't get In my case, you know, I'm a software business, traditional banks don't understand software. (laughs) Good luck trying to get a $50,000 line, right? So uh, what we see is, to your question, you know, we see that kind of innovation around access to capital happening in, in many, many of these underserved markets.
0: So in a lot of ways, it stems straight from need.
2: Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, and that it's need translates into opportunity. It's just, yeah. Well, again, it's—I mean, we're as an entrepreneur, you can't help but see the opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I have a friend who had a software company in the late '90s, and he said, you know, it's like I remember when my bank was sending me unsolicited offers off, offers for two hundred fifty thousand dollars lines of credit. You can't get that anymore today, right? <laughs> and so, so then, but figuring that out. So for, for us, it's an it's an interesting puzzle, right? How do you how do you do the economics of a loan fund uh, that pencils, that sustains itself, provides incredible value to the community? And then, from our perspective, we want our uh, participants in the loan fund to graduate to profitability, to bankability, and to investability. Um, so, we don't want to be in the business of, of, of lending per se. We just want them to be able to move on to the next phase of their company's life.
0: So, let's talk a little bit more about that, about what your fund actually does. So, when, and it's strictly female-led companies? Mm -hmm. So when a female-led company or an entrepreneur wants to work with you, what does that look like?
2: So in the case of the Accelerate Fund, what we're doing is um, we're actually de-risking our loans by putting uh, folks through the Accelerator program. And that's sort of a proven strategy around the country. Um, So everybody gets sort of a standardized exposure, if you will, to sort of uh, cash flow projections and business models and operational systems and sales and all that good stuff. And um, at the end of their cohort, the the entrepreneurs then qualify for the loan program. And what we're doing there is it's a character-based program, right? So it's, or as our uh, partners in in Colorado who we're working with uh, put it, (laughs) it's just good old-fashioned relationship banking, right? So we know these businesses Mm -hmm. because we've worked with them for three months. Um, they bring us character references. They tell us what they need the funds for, uh, and then we make a determination. We have a partner in in Colorado who does the underwriting, and then we make the local determination on the on the final go ahead. And it's the need is everything from um, well, geez, I'm I'm doing a production run and I need to underwrite that production run uh, to I have you know. Uh, bumpy cash flow, for example, in my business, right, long lead times uh, takes a while for rich customers to make a decision, Um, to, um, you know, sort of a strategic expense. uh, For example, one of the businesses we're working with is uh, looking to develop franchising, right, and so they have sort of one-off expenses around putting that package together.
0: Okay, so your services really run the gamut from everything a startup or an entrepreneur might need in terms of investment?
2: Not everything. So, we specifically target post-revenue businesses that may have a strategic need for debt capital, right? So, okay. we're not the right fit for everyone, uh, and we don't try to be. Like the, the need we identified specifically is sort of in that ten to $100,000 range where you know, somebody may need, like I say, a line of credit to smooth out cash flow, make a strategic acquisition, make a strategic hire. Um, that that all supports the growth of revenue out of which they can then service the loan, right? So this is not a, this doesn't replace seed funding, for example.
0: So what advice would you give to a high net worth individual who is interested in early stage
2: investing? The, um, so high net worth individuals have an interesting opportunity to um, Play with the whole, uh, their whole portfolio, and sort of stretch their muscle along the entire, you know, capital spectrum. <laughs> um, so my advice is always to 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 think about that entire capital spectrum and think about your your grant making on the one end of the extreme, right, where you have a minus 100% return expectation to your you know, sort of venture and equity type uh, investments where you have a 10x to 100x maybe return expectation. And think about how your investments can work together along that spectrum. And it doesn't really matter what your like if you have an impact lens, for example, like some people are interested in investing in women, or they're particularly interested in a certain geography or in a certain topic, all of that is fine. You can build highly diversified portfolios along, along that capital spectrum. And so I, I always recommend you know educate yourself about essentially the, the different options along that spectrum and think about how they can go hand in hand, right? So for example, in our case. We, we have people who give us grants t- for the education program and then also come in as investors in the loan fund, right? And now you're beginning to create a nice sort of synergistic effect with your capital. And you just, you just have to be deliberate about, you know, how you allocate your resources in the minus 100%, uh, you know, bucket uh, all the way to the 10X bucket.
0: What are you and your colleagues doing to, get early stage investors or people who want to become early stage investors to understand this concept of the zebra and to see it as a value to invest in it?
2: So that's a great question you know the what we're finding is that there are people who are keenly interested in sort of understanding more diverse ways of, of allocating their their capital and, and making investments and generally there's sort of a dearth of Information out there. So, uh, to some extent, what we have to do is, um, you know, just sort of launch more sort of a public, public education campaign mm-hmm. around, you know, the alternatives to venture and, and philanthropy. Right? Like a, a lot of people, I think, think in those two extremes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're at Zebra's unite. We're embarking sort of on a on a strategy around broadening um, access to information about the different options that are out there. And we're thinking about that with partners in you know in terms of how we can make that uh, information accessible no matter where you go. Right. So I I'd like I'd like there to be sort of a shared set of of sort of information and documents that can be accessed. You know. Whether you come to the Zebus Unite website or the Village Capital website, or you come to it through the wealth management office of your uh, of your bank, right? Um, that's sort of that's the dream. Like make it as make it as ubiquitous mm-hmm. as sort of the the mythology around venture capital has become in the last forty years.
0: I like that every way that you talk about venture capital investing has some kind of mythical element to it. It's
2: very appealing to me. Well, it's sort of taken on a life of its own, right? I mean, it's kind of funny, actually, when you look at the history of venture capital. I mean, it it came into existence because there were entrepreneurs who couldn't get, you know, bank financing and couldn't get funding for these esoteric ideas they had in sort of the dawn of the the computer age, right? And now we're, I would say, we're at at another another inflection point. Like Web 1.0 has sort of played out. Web 2.0 has played out. And there, are what we see a lot of is in 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 among the zebras is there are actually a lot of sort of category busters. So what's interesting is when you listen to people like Mark Benioff and his issues with raising capital, right? When he founded Salesforce, those kinds of companies are when when cloud came came into existence, right? Um, those are indicative of these new sort of category eras. And what's happening now, in my opinion, is that venture capital has become so set in its ways. People don't understand the origins. They don't understand mm-hmm. that they were. They started out looking for the black swans. Now they wouldn't know a black swan if it bit them in the face, just to mix my zoological metaphors here. right? <laughs> so if you don't look like what they already know and what they see in the mirror, they mm-hmm. don't recognize the potential. So we're actually looking at a, I, I see this as a sort of necessary evolution of just the capital ecosystem. Right, yes, so VC's been chugging along for 40 years, and now we're seeing a whole bunch of innovation around new forms of capital, right? Whether that's our loan fund approach or you know revenue-based financing, or a whole bunch of interesting uh, blended instruments that people are coming up with. And it's, it's not because um, we're jealous of venture, it's just that there's a massive underserved opportunity, <laughs> and people are going, geez, how can, I get a, how can I get a few basis points on those trillions? <laughs> right. Let's pick your brain a little bit
0: about things you've learned and how you've grown from them. So what's something you wish you knew when you first started what you're doing?
2: <laughs> That's such a, oh, such a good question, right? So I'm, um, uh, I'm, I made a midlife career change, right? I went from be- being a nonprofit executive to being a tech entrepreneur. And what was um, striking is how much I had to relearn um, mm. systemic injustice because <laughs> with the time, you know, I was the president of a good-sized uh, nonprofit organization. Uh, I was not being promoted uh, on, on on my, you know, wonderful looks or the fact that I'm blonde or anything, I, you know, and, and here I am like en- entering this new arena and just ran into a whole bunch of prejudice and that was jarring to have that experience in my 40s. Uh, and so I guess, you know, uh, what I... What, I had I I wish I could have anticipated that a little bit better because that took a while to sort of get used to oh no it's really not me Nope, that is just that is just systemic uh, discrimination you're running into
0: what are some tangible examples of that kind of prejudice that you saw
2: well so for example in my case you know so I'm an older entrepreneur uh, who's created a company based on my you know 15 20 year experience in an industry right and so as an economist He would say, well, yeah, that that makes sense, right? You know the industry you're going to want to disrupt. Um, That should be a strength. And I was literally meeting with angel investors who would say, well, don't you think you're, looking at my financials, don't you think you're paying yourself too much? I said, well, I'm not a 23-year-old single dude living off ramen, right? I have a family. I, have, I almost just spit out my water. <laughs> Sorry, I always make you I always make you spit your water. But that's like one of those things where people have just sort of this sort of cookie-cutter impression of what an entrepreneur should look like and should, mm. how they should show up, right? And then, of course, there was the fun um, suggestion that maybe I should consider hiring a male CFO so I could, um, you know, paint a more compelling picture in my finances and my financial projections, to which I said you do realize I'm a PhD economist, right? If I wanted to paint you more compelling financials, I would. I just don't like lying to my investors. Sure. So those were some...
0: <laughs> I mean, wow. Yeah, uh-huh. I mean, of course, the thing that's popping in my brain is, they would have never asked me on that, but... Of course not.
2: <laughs> well, but that's the thing, right? Like, all the all the data that you read, like, all the studies that you read about... You know, women get asked defensive questions. How do you mm. how how are you going to make sure that you how are you going to make sure that you don't fail? As opposed to what's your vision for this thing, right? Like all those things are true, and I experienced them firsthand. Now I clearly have the confidence and the life experience to say, well, that's bullshit. Yeah. Right. Um, but how many entrepreneurs don't have that? Right. And then uh, I mean, the and it's actually borne out by the entrepreneurs we see coming through the accelerator program. Uh, in Oregon, they just come in with, I mean, there's like deeply um, deeply held beliefs about their own lack of self-worth, right? Like women mm-hmm. already struggle with how they relate to money and their own sense of competence. And then you get told that story again, right, uh, by the sorts of investors that you meet with. So we see that. Worn out. Is that
0: something that you coach women on when they come to your accelerator?
2: Increasingly, yeah. We've just started doing that with our third cohort. Um, because again, like the, the four of us who founded the program, you know, we it wasn't so much part of our experience, but we have we've we've learned that that's actually a, one of the most important things you can do is is help uh, women and for that matter other underserved founders uh, develop the sort of the coping mechanisms <laughs> um, to to meet the world around them. Um, and to then, you know, make it their own.
0: So this is an interesting segue into my next question, which is, you just told us what is frequently asked of female investors. What do
2: you wish more investors asked? What's asked of female entrepreneurs? Yes. Um, the, the question um, that I think most of us would like to hear more is is around um, the the vision and the nature of the problem that you're trying to solve, right? So a lot of times you get this stupid advice, like if you go into pitch competitions, oh, make it like the Hollywood pitch. It's like the whatever, you know. It's like Tinder for dogs, right? Like it has to be super simple for people to understand. Well, guess what? A lot of women and entrepreneurs of color are not solving simple problems, right? They're mm-hmm. not solving the problems that are essentially replacing mom, which is how I've heard a lot of <laughs> startups described, you know, like laundry servers and the, the tiendas or whatever, right? Wow. Um, sushi delivery by drone, whatever. Um, <laughs> we're actually solving more complex issues, right? And so one of my advisors uh, said, you know, anybody who asks you for a one pager is not the right investor for you hmm. because you can have uh, business-driven, highly scalable, very ambitious solutions to complex problems. And guess what? By <laughs> solving a complex problem, your solution isn't going to be simple. It's not going to be Tinder for social change, what we're building. like What we're building in my company is fairly complex digital infrastructure for mobilizing innovations and capital. I can say that, but you don't know what that means, you know, and the, the service. The best I can do is describe it as market networks as a service, and the analogy I use is with the the visa system like when 's the last time you 've used uh, you know a traveler check <laughs> right Somebody had to go and invent that deep infrastructure, and then sort of the light bulbs go on but i 've already lost my Hollywood pitch moment right and so that's so that 's I think um, what i 'd like to hear more from investors is sort of the don't look don't look for this pattern don't look for the sound bite mm. but actually let the entrepreneur work up to you know describing the the sort of the three dimensions of of what they're trying to do
0: Are there certain criteria for you that you're especially looking for with a potential investment
2: so the investments we're making uh with the accelerate fund um are very much uh designed to help a business make an important pivot, Mm -hmm. right? So it's that sort of that critical moment. um, uh, And our friends in Colorado who are, are, with whom we're working, a Colorado lending source on the servicing of those loans, you know, they have wonderful examples of, you know, helping somebody kickstart their Kickstarter campaign or helping with, you know, uh, customer acquisition to get to a certain threshold of customer numbers that then made that company eligible for VC funding. So we're looking for those, you know, sort of, Pivotal kind of interventions in a in a business,
0: and are there any red flags that you look out for?
2: Uh, well, because we're character based, right? We're, we really uh, pay a lot of attention to um, you know what what peers have to say about a company, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and we are we're, the other red flags are it's not so much do you have a business plan or do you have cash projections, but are you are you willing to let yourself be coached so you can you can actually put your, put your business on, on a solid footing. I think the biggest red flag is if your business uh, finances are still commingled with your personal finances, you're probably not quite ready.
0: <laughs> That's interesting. How do you get to that answer? How do you ask someone that, are you ready to be coached? Are you willing to sort of relinquish a little bit of control
2: so that we can do this the right way? Oh, it's not, it's not hard to spot. It's like porn. You know, you know it <laughs> when you see it.
0: So, my last question for you would be, you're in this position as a female entrepreneur, as someone who is investing in these zebra companies and you know lesser supported communities. How do you stay so passionate and focused in what could be a very frustrating and sometimes condescending World, like you talked
2: about,
0: how do you keep it up?
2: Well, the world is still the world, right? So, I mean, uh, you're surrounded by condescension and annoyance and frustration all day, every day, right? What makes me passionate about this work is like when I'm actively trying to do something about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the short answer, right? So. I'm, I'm, I'm like a frog who's, you know, fallen into a vat of milk, right? And you have, you have choices, right? You could be the pessimist who just goes, oh, I'm in a vat of milk. I'm going to drown and drown. So you can be the optimist who goes, ah, milk, right? Bl-bl-bl- drink it all up and still drowns. Or you can be like the little pragmatist frog who just does what frogs do, which is to paddle around. And next thing you know, you've churned the butter and you mm-hmm. climb out of the vat. So <laughs> that's me turning, turning away to climb out of the vat of systemic <laughs> injustice. <laughs>
0: Wow what a what a beautiful analogy to end this mythical interview filled <laughs> with mentions of all the creatures across the land thank you so much
2: from unicorns to zebras yeah frogs <laughs> we hit them all
0: yeah we really did that was fun Thank you thank you so Chris, what do you think? are you a unicorn or a zebra? <laughs>
1: Best game ever. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm
0: definitely zebra. Oh, because you're pragmatic and interested in the business building. I get it. <laughs> it's so
1: nerdy. Yes.
0: I've decided I'm probably a camel. <laughs> I drink a ton of water.
1: It's just just it's flowing tonight, A. L. M. Yeah. So perfect. I, I, it, this this conversation was a reminder for me that investing is is a social game and. And socially, it is safer to usually be wrong with a lot of people than instead risking looking like a loon out on a limb. And the culture radiating out of Silicon Valley for the last decade or two that has really shaped private market investing and and really even philanthropy is to focus on the biggest scale possible.
0: And that evolved into this usage of the word unicorns, searching for big billion dollar private growth companies Which created a lot of pattern-seeking, which can really be powerful but also insidious. Insidious, yes. Insidious.
1: So that leaves a lot of ideas and problems and people unattended, Mm -hmm. things that aren't perceived to be that pattern match for a billion-dollar company. Astrid is part of a wave that you, dear listener, could be part of too. Change how and why and when we invest in solutions to big, hairy problems. Okay, that is this episode of Off the Sidelines, an investor education podcast series brought to you by us at Technically and powered by Project Entrepreneur, a program sponsored by UBS. If you're wondering, gee, gosh, what excellent free content! How could I possibly repay them?
0: Oh, oh, I know. Leave us a kind review. Yes, because that actually helps. Then make sure you subscribe to the full series.
1: If you have comments or questions, tweet us at technical underscore L-Y or get at me at Christopher Wink. Our music in this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions. Episodes are produced by John Myers with production support by Sam Fishfanman Markowitz.
0: See you next week.